and sometimes why. Why? You're listening to And Sometimes Why, twice-monthly, long-form conversation podcast hosted by singer-songwriter, producer, and pseudo-intellectual Rob Zabo. Hey, folks. Welcome to And Sometimes Why. I'm Rob, your host, your usual host, the only host there's ever been on this show. Our guest today is my wonderful dear friend, Christine Bird. She's currently the Community Engagement Coordinator at U of W School of Pharmacy. She's done a lot of other stuff around social issues and crime prevention and community safety in the region, and there's lots to dig into. She's a musician as well. We met, or rather, we got to know each other playing in the jazz band in high school at Grand River in Kitchener a million years ago. So it's it's great to relive some of those memories. And we also were roommates back in the day in the late 90s. Anyway, lots to talk about. But before we get into that, normally what happens here is I, I have a little monologue, you know, I tell you how I'm feeling or what's been going on in my mind, what I've been thinking about. And I kind of shared this story with you guys, with you folks earlier on in this process of this podcast, because we're up to 60 plus episodes here. And I always found the monologues really difficult to do. The first one I did took me probably about five hours to do. And the monologue's only, what is it, five minutes around there. And so today, what I'm running into is after 60 episodes, it's not that I don't have anything to say. You know what? It's got nothing to do with 60 episodes. What it has to do with is I'm irritable today. <laughs> no matter what I think of, I hate the idea. And I've shot down everything I wanted to talk about. And what I'm left with is talking about shooting everything down. It's very meta. Um, you ever get into that zone where no matter what you think of, it just has a negative valence, a negative overtone? I've been through this with songwriting before, where I'm, you know, I'm in a room playing my guitar, which usually brings me a lot of joy. And, you know, I'll play a riff and I don't like it. I'll sing a little bit. I won't like it. Usually it means I'm tired. Maybe that's what it is. I've been through that many times. It's like you've got an editor sitting on your shoulder, and the moment an idea presents itself, it gets shot down, almost before it can get presented. So uh, that's where I'm at today. Enjoying the podcast? Make sure to subscribe in the app you're using to get new episodes twice a month. Want to help spread the word? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. More reviews and ratings means the algorithm shows and sometimes why to more people. If you listen on Spotify, you can share directly to your Instagram and Facebook stories. It all helps get the word out. But the very best thing you can do is tell a friend. All right, let's dig into this conversation with Christine Bird. Christine Bird has done a lot. She has been a prof at Conestoga College teaching sociology and social issues, mostly around crime prevention and community safety. She's been executive director at the Alliance for Children and Youth in Waterloo Region. She was also coordinator of community crime prevention initiatives at John Howard Society. She's also done a lot of other stuff. She's played bass guitar with my neighbor Ned and Matt Osborne. And we lived together in our 20s, so we've got more than enough to talk about. This is my conversation with my dear friend, Christine Bird. So I blew out a tire like an hour ago and had to abandon my car in my sister's driveway and walk home. It's all good. I'm here. It's actually good because it got my head out of thinking about this <laughs> and it forced me to walk too, which also is good for clearing your head. I'm really grateful that that we're still doing this. I mean, uh, to me, you sending me a message saying, hey, dude, uh, we got to do it another day. It's <laughs> a long story. <laughs> Would have been perfectly acceptable. I love that blowing out a tire was a positive thing in terms of how it plays <laughs> into us talking. Well, I think sometimes when you're like, too in your head, having something in the external world happen 
pulls you out and makes you like, okay, here you are walking home and it's not raining. And you're, my dog was the big winner in this because he's like, woohoo, we get an extra half hour walk. <laughs> like, um, you know, and it makes me walk home and, you know, I'm looking, going, okay, we can figure all of this out. This is just more adulting, right? Just <laughs> I could totally use that because I get so nervous for these things. I work myself up and I am like, have all this self-imposed pressure because no one really gives a shit. It's a podcast that, you know, it's not like I'm Mark Marin or any of these people who have enormous podcasts. That It's it's like a little project, but I, I get really nervous and worked up, even though it's pe like you and I have known each other for like 30 years or something crazy. Probably more, probably 35, right? 35, 35 so years. what do I have yeah. to be nervous about? But it would have been helpful to me if I had blown out a tire, for sure. 100%, it would have been like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Life is fine. There's no reason to be nervous to talk to Christine. We know each other. It's all good. <laughs> I get weirdly nervous talking to people that I haven't talked in a while. Like, I feel like I have to cram it all in somehow or, you know, I forget things like I get on a, you know, a tangent or a train of thought and I forget where I wanted to go back to. And then I'll realize it like, you know, at four in the morning. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's where I was going with that story. You play back conversations? All, all the time. So do I. Constantly. I think it's only a certain kind of person that I does play back that. conversations that happened years ago. I'll still play through them. And what do you think's at work there? I don't know. I Some of it, I think, is a little bit of worry. Some of it is I hate being embarrassed. I hate so much being embarrassed. I think it's a fear of embarrassment on some level. Like, did I say something four years ago that that person is still you know, smacking their yeah, head about. And exactly. Like, and as we get wow. older, it's like everyone's so involved in their own shit. No one is thinking about what anyone else <laughs> said or did, or they're just happy that they blew out a tire so they could walk the dog for an extra <laughs> half an hour. Right. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's like I never got out of high school, right? In high school, you think everyone's looking at you, but they're all so self-involved that they're not looking at you. They're worried about other people looking at them, right? So they're, everybody's in their own little world. Well, I just sort of stayed there, I think. We both turned 50 this year and you still feel like that. Yeah. I still feel like that. You you would think like when I, I remember looking at people who were, you know, my parents in their 50s and just thinking they were so impossibly old that I had no gauge of what their life would be like, especially not their inner life. I never even gave it a thought, but I thought whatever it might be, it was very structured and they had it to get, you know, there was some sense to it. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. That was the image I had is that everybody, you know, certainly when they're 50, they know what yeah. they're doing. And and now that we're both 50, I can confirm in no uncertain terms that it's a yard sale. <laughs> It's a fucking yard sale <laughs> internally for me. I've got no idea what's going on. It's like alarms are going off. No, the socks are mismatched, everything. I got to tell you that one of the funniest days of my entire life was the day that we had a yard sale. Do you remember you, me, and When Jim? we lived together on Herbert Street. This is in Kitchener, Waterloo, near Union and uh, kind of Weber area for people who know the city. Yeah. To me, that would that was a Seinfeld episode that whole day. I don't remember it very well. What what was so funny about it? Well, first of all, my family was ninety percent of our customers, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I bought more than I sold, so I ended up owing Jim money at the end of it because I bought all of his stuff. So just to give people context, the three of us lived together in our late 20s, late 1990s in Kitchener. None of us were married, right? It was all pre that. Uh, this was the end of us living together when Jim, who owned the house, had just uh, gotten married and was about to move out with his wife, Kath. And I sold, I sold a tape player to some guy and it, it didn't work. And then we saw him walking back to return the tape player. <laughs> I was like hiding in the house. You knew it didn't work? No, I didn't know. Well, I don't know if that I That doesn't knew. seem like you question. to sell a guy a tape player that but doesn't work. He, I don't actually remember whether I knew. But the best part of that day was I had been telling you guys about this milk jug that I had that was made of Melmac? Melmac? Melamite? Yeah. So I said to you guys, like, it's unbreakable. This milk jug is unbreakable. <laughs> it's funny already. And that was my selling feature, I guess. Anyway, I went into the bathroom and the next thing I hear is smash. Because <laughs> you guys waited for your moment and chucked it up in the air to see if it would break and it shattered. See, I remember that now that you 
I don't know what happens to my memories. I would never have thought of that again in my life, except for now that you bring it back up. Oh yeah, of course. That was such a pivotal time for me. Like I think of my late 20s, our late 20s, like you're old enough that you're no longer kids, but you're still naive enough to have fun and do stupid shit like he just described. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I wouldn't do that right now. <laughs> But th that's so great. Yeah. I have such great memories of that era. And that era, like right after that, where you and I, you know, lived at your place, that condo in Waterloo for another year or so. Yeah, you're uninhibited somehow, or you're, I don't know, you, you take chances. I mean, that's a stupid little example of it, taking a chance, but it's a chance that I wouldn't Me too. do now, right? Now I would just think about, I'd have to clean it up. Right. Like, yeah, me too. Like, I'm not going to smash, like, no matter how, how much I actually believe that you have no idea that this thing is actually very breakable. I'm not going to smash it to make my buddy laugh <laughs> and then to make you laugh by extension. I'd, it, it would never happen. Yeah. How do we get back to that you <laughs> without were, having to clean it up? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, without having to clean it up. That's the thing is now there's this layer of adulting, right? I'm always thinking ahead about the consequence, right? The the thing that I have to do after. So, you know, it's no longer a fun, a fun decision. It's a decision and I'm already in my head at the cleaning up stage. The fact that I have to fix that later. Do you remember at later. what point you made the, like you went across the threshold? I don't remember that about myself. I just remember late twenties, which is the era we're talking about. Into my thirties, I would just do stuff. I wouldn't really think about it. I would, I would just boldly do whatever thing and a lot of it seems silly now in retrospect. And now I just think about everything to the point where I just don't do a lot of it. Yeah, but I, yeah, I don't know when I lost it. Like when that crossover happened. I need answers here. You have to start interviewing people at different ages and yeah, see whether that see, see exactly at what point or... it, it changes over. When we were setting up this conversation, we were talking about working from home and how it's been a bit of a challenge for you. I wanted to talk about that a little bit if you're into it. I worked out all the the working from home bugs when I when I stopped touring and started producing about 10 years ago and it's so interesting to talk to people who working from home is a new thing because it, there's so many distractions, yeah. right? And now I've got it down to a science where I'm like, okay, it's per like I'm never wasting a single second because if the computer's rendering a file or so, I'm doing the dishes in that moment and it's I'm like hyper productive, but it took me a long time to get there. Wow, I'm envious. I'm not hyper productive. <laughs> I'm very unproductive at home. There's too much that I should do, I guess. Um, so if you're looking at at that pile of dishes, you're like that the dishes have to get done before the other because I just can't stand for them not to be. Yeah, I might as well throw on the laundry and stick a lasagna in the oven and whatever. Right? It's like I I multitask to the point where I don't get anything done. Like everything's <laughs> half done. I don't know the answer to it, but I know that it is not working for me. <laughs> Plus, I mean, for a good chunk of that time, I had a you know a ten year old who is bouncing off the walls like around me, right? So yeah, so that's something I can't speak to at all. I, I have no idea what that might be like. Yeah, so you're working and you finally get your head in something because a lot of my job is reading and writing, right? So I've got to be able to get my head into it. If you've got somebody yelling from the other room, how do you spell? And then gibberish <laughs> after that, like. You know, and if you don't answer him, he just gets louder and more persistent. Like, you can't ignore my child. He will not be well, ignored. Well, that's his job. So that is, oh, that is his job. And he's so that's, good at it. He's a darling, but he's just not cut out for right. online learning. Right. Yeah. So, no, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm envious of the fact that you've worked that balance. I don't want to feel braggy about it. Truthfully, it was a, a long learning curve for me. It took me a long time. And I think, all, you know, what I learned over COVID is I was lonely. I didn't realize I was lonely, but Kat was at home for the lockdown. And then I'm like, wow, I'm way happier. First of all, she's awesome. But I think I was lonely. And I didn't realize that I just worked in isolation. I thought, well, that's what I need. I have to have isolation. Otherwise, I don't get anything done. Of course, to your point about your son, right? Well, you got to have a little bit of <laughs> human interaction, right? I mean, and not having another adult in the house was a big problem. Just having someone else around whether they care about what you're doing or not, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a level of accountability that you're, that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You just automatically do that when there's an adult in the room. But when you're by yourself, no one knows if I'm cooking a lasagna or putting on my laundry or whatever, right? And it's not that I'm purposely bagging off. It's just bagging yeah, off. Yeah, that's there's an a, old school uh, saying, uh, Grand River. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, so no, I'm really thankful to be back, uh, back in the office at least half, half days. And that has definitely shifted my perspective, just getting dressed, <laughs> driving to, you know, another place just changes my whole headspace. So I need that. I need, and I, to some extent I need, yeah, people around, like, even though they're, you know, just walking past my office or, you know, waving in the corridor or whatever, just that even casual interactions with people that matters, like, and it's, it doesn't exist when you're, that's interesting. Everything you just described sounded like just another way to waste time with people, you know, just, and and I'm like, how does that increase productivity? Cause that's, that's the way I think of, I'm always thinking of like systems and productivity and like, Oh, don't you just end up talking with people about stuff that doesn't matter. But then of course, this is from the lonely guy, you know, but talking about big, talking about ideas, even though that, and this is even when I was full-time, even pre-COVID, you know, full-time in the office, I would need to every now and then just like knock on someone's door and dump a giant idea on them. I can see the first couple of times they're looking at me like, what? <laughs> like, you're never going to be able to do that in this context. And I, and I would reassure them and say, I know that. I just need to put the big idea out there because big ideas uh-huh. like energize me. Right. So just talking through some something that might be a little bit crazy or might be a little grandiose kind of thing in the context, just sort of putting it out with somebody like that can be a 10 minute conversation. And I walk back to my office and I suddenly can focus and get stuff done. Like there's something about having those bigger conversations that fuels me. That's really interesting. We haven't talked about what you do much at all. So you're talked. the community engagement coordinator at University of Waterloo School of Pharmacy. So what does that mean? The students that are in our program are there for four years and they do a certain number of components of experiential learning. So they do co-op and patient care rotations, which are big pieces of experiential learning. And then I do a really little piece called community service learning. So our students have to um, essentially engage with a vulnerable population through volunteer work and learn about how to serve that population. So I help them with that. I help them to figure out sort of where they'd like to work and who they'd like to learn more about. Then they have a series of assignments that they do for me that I mark and give them feedback. But essentially what we're trying to do is get these healthcare professionals in, in training get them to think about how to serve vulnerable populations better. So we're talking about people living in poverty. If they want to learn more about that group, go and work at a you know, right. St. John's kitchen, serving meals, that kind of thing. Or if they're interested in seniors to, to sit down and play Euchre, <laughs> that's <laughs> a Grand River thing too. And, and just get to know them on a more personal level before they're interacting with them professionally. So it's about, you know, communicating better with that population or getting comfortable. Mostly it's about getting comfortable. Wow, that sounds like really meaningful work. I think so, but it's different from everything they do. So our students kind of look look at me and go, why do I have to do this? It makes me think of the Seinfeld joke about why do pharmacists have to stand two feet above everyone else? right? Is the, does that play into the, the mindset? I don't know the joke. What's the punchline? I'd never noticed that they were higher like why do they have to be on a riser and so he point he points that out and ever since i'm like yeah that's true when you go into a pharmacy they're slightly raised they're on a stage and you they're go oh what do we what psychological principle is at work here and so that must play into these people are on stage they're performers i don't know what i will say that pharmacists are by and large incredibly they are. humble they are they're not doctors in the you know how doctors kind of have this sometimes a bit of a God complex, right? And they're solving all your problems and you have to go through the doctor before you can go to anybody else. And pharmacists are kind of the other end of that is that, you know, come to me with your questions and they can do more than I've become an advocate for pharmacists, but I didn't really know anything about pharmacists before I worked at the School of Pharmacy. But, you know, they tend to be really careful and quiet and humble and they can do more than you might expect. You can bring questions to them that you might not Think I've had that experience. Yeah, they can't diagnose you, but they often know quite a lot about Yeah, I've had that experience where where uh, I'll just throw a question and I'll go, I know you're not a doctor and I know you don't really know my situation, but, you know, with, with the thing, should I do the thing and what the other thing? And they'll often take an active yeah. interest and tell me stuff that's really valuable. And I'm surprised every time. Yeah, me too. I'm So when I first, so I kind of landed in this job by accident. I was having coffee with this guy that I knew from another job. His wife just shows up 
in the middle of this coffee. We're sitting in Tim Hortons and I had met her before, but I didn't know her very well. And she just says to me, you know, there's this job at the School of Pharmacy where I work and I just think you'd be perfect for it. Would you come in for a meeting? And I'm just like, oh, okay. What did she know about you? Like, how did she judge you'd be perfect for it? Like she'd known you previously or? Well, she knew of me through her husband. She was, yeah. So she had heard about my my work and my work previous to this was I was coordinating services for kids. So child welfare, children's mental health services, counseling, um, education system, they all kind of came together in this group. And then I would facilitate meetings that would foster connecting points between those services. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, very much a partnership builder, right? A community developer. Um, I wasn't pushing for one direction or the other. Like it was a very neutral Switzerland kind of position <laughs> right. um, in that, you know, my, my job was the process was bringing people together. So she, she knew what I did and that I had the ability to bring partners together. And then I knew the social service landscape um, in our region really well at the school of pharmacy. I need to be reaching out to community organizations and seeing what kind of volunteer roles might be available and what our students could do in the community but this woman came in knowing that I had a background in partnership building back at the School of Pharmacy. She knew that this position was coming up and it needed to uh -huh. be revamped, like it needed to be reworked. Um, the, the way they were doing it before wasn't working very well. So they needed somebody to come mm -hmm. and redesign it. So she just was like, oh, you know, my husband's having this coffee with, with Christine. I'm going to just like crash the party. And so she came and just sort of, I don't know, proposed this, hey, would you come in for a meeting? So she... I came in with nothing to lose. That's the other beautiful thing is that that's when I get jobs is when I'm not looking for jobs, when they just like the opportunity just arrived. So I had nothing to lose. Right. So I went in and said, you know, sure. That's definitely the best way to do an interview. Like I'm, I'm terrible at interviewing, but I'm great at doing projects. Do you know what I mean? Like I'd rather skip the yeah. interview. Just give me a project. I'll do it on spec. Then you'll see what it's like to work with yeah. me. But like doing the dance right. and like selling yourself selling in that yourself. way on the spot. Okay, now be funny, be articulate, be like, it's totally artificial. Yeah, yeah and I can't do it. I'm so um, transparent. Like you can read it on my face that I'm not into it. Me too, 100%. Like I, I have no acting ability. I'm telegraphing so many things about exactly what I'm thinking about the process. I, I was never, I've never asked a woman out on a date for the same reason. It's like going yeah. up to someone at a bar, hey, buy you a drink. And like the whole thing <laughs> is ridiculous. <laughs> You've done so much meaningful work with the community and with children and youth over the time we've known each other. So again, this was the late 90s. We were in our late 20s. And you worked at John Howard Society as coordinator of community crime prevention initiatives. Yeah. How did you dig up that title? Impressive. I have my, uh, my means. But <laughs> you, you really <laughs> taught me a lot and shape my outlook on how we as a society should be looking at crime and young offenders and what approaches work and what approaches produce the opposite of the intended outcome. In a nutshell, I remember the line of thinking you were sort of championing at the time was that, quote unquote, tough laws on crime don't work. They produce the opposite, meaning they don't reduce crime, they nurture and create criminals. First of all, am I getting it right? Yeah, you're getting it right. For sure, you're getting it right. And it still holds true. So that that's such an important message. Like, I feel like I don't hear clear articulations of this idea from either side of the, the political spectrum. I feel like who's who's getting this message out? I mean, it's, it's always a balance. I mean, it sort of rests, I guess, within a political philosophy, right? We swing back and forth in terms of political discussions about you know, what is the role of incarceration? What is the role of punishment? And so I think it, the public opinion kind of swings back and forth. And I think it also, it's like, we might um, sort of start to make some headway in terms of when we invest in prevention, mm -hmm. uh, people don't offend against their community, right? When we nurture relationships, when we make people feel that they're part of something, that they belong in a community, they don't offend against it, right? When they have when they know their neighbors, when they um, have positive interactions with, you know, shopkeepers and all that kind of stuff, when they can go about, you know, their business being in a neighborhood and feeling like it's their neighborhood, they belong there. They don't offend against it. That makes all the sense in the world. The question, like, if I was to play the devil's advocate, yeah. I'd ask, like, how do you invest in a systematic way? I can imagine how you do it on a, you know, human to human basis. 
if you're trying to cast a wider net, how does that work? Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult because you've got, you know, people on the other side saying, you know, somebody does the crime, they should do the time. And we've got to be really firm with people as soon as they offend, you know, we need to send them a clear message that that's not okay. And so they're, they're very much about coming out Mm -hmm. sort of hard. And what you taught me about that is that just purely doesn't work. Not only does it not prevent crime, it actually increases crime. Worsens it. That's a fact. That's all there is to it. I think people, you know, who have, if you think I'm a criminal, then Mm -hmm. I might as well be a criminal, right? If you're going to treat me that I'm going to do something wrong, if you're going to like lurk around and, you know, watch what I'm doing and sort of suspect that I'm going to do something Mm -hmm. bad, if that's what you think I'm going to do, then I might as well live up to that, right? So I think that sort of surveillance attitude or, um, you know, having kids go through metal detectors and to your question about what what do you do about that, I think you invest in kids, you invest in special education, you invest in parks, make cities walkable, use spaces in ways that feel connecting. You design communities for relationships. You know, that sounds all airy-fairy and lovely, but you act differently in spaces where you feel welcome. That doesn't sound airy-fairy to me at all. The walkability thing, that's huge. Because I live downtown Toronto, and I talk about that all the time on this podcast. I never drive. When I go back to Kitchener, where I grew up, I'm immediately struck with, I'm driving everywhere, and especially at night, it feels very different. You know, you drive downtown Kitchener at night, it, it feels a little sketchy. You're like, well, there's nobody on the street. You always feel safe downtown Toronto because there's always, no matter where you are, there's dozens of people within a few hundred feet. And there's, there's yeah. you know, feeling of safety, a feeling of, oh, we're in this together. Everything you're, that makes sense to me. Yeah. When you were working at John Howard, did you work directly with young offenders? Or were you more coming up with policies and lobbying politicians and stuff? Or what, what were you doing in, in a practical way? Yeah, I had a couple roles there. Um, mostly I was working at the very early prevention stuff. So I would go into classes. Do you remember being uh, that I was the bully lady? Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. now, <laughs> that I would go into classes and talk about bullying. This is high bullying. school then? Or no, this is, these uh, are like grade threes, grade fours, grade right. fives. And that's where it starts, right? Yeah. Violence. So I went in and I talked about bullying, like long before everyone was talking about bullying. So that's why- This was the 90s. It was actually this really funny position because I'd be out at the grocery store and there'd be like, you know, a nine-year-old kind of peeking around the corner and then they'd finally come up and go, I know you, you're the bully lady. <laughs> <laughs> So somehow that, I don't know, that name got stuck on me, but, but yeah, so I would come and I would talk to kids about what bullying was. And it was almost like making something that everybody knew explicit. All the little kids knew what bullying was and they knew that it was, they were afraid of certain kids and um, that people were being mean or people were relentlessly picking on somebody. Like they knew all of that Mm. stuff was going on, but they didn't have the words to talk about it. They didn't. So this was like permission to talk about it, right? This was, and I would often, you know, give them scenarios and like, like, do you feel this way? Or have you ever experienced? And the kids would be nodding like. They were receptive. They wanted to talk about it. Yeah, they were very receptive. The difficulty was that um, reports of bullying would go up after I oh. talked to them. And it's not because bullying was going on more. It's that suddenly the kids felt liberated to talk about it, right? They had language to talk about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So that, you know, so I'd come in and I'd talk to the kids and then like suddenly the teachers have all these reports. I mean, it's good. It's good that kids are talking about it. And, but yeah, that's how it started was talking to young kids about bullying. And then we would do other things like conflict resolution and peer pressure. So you, and you so I was kind of making on, these on conflict topics. resolution with kids. Yeah. Wow. What was kind of neat about that now is that I look, now I have a kid uh-huh. who's in grade five, right? Yeah. Grade six, sorry, he's in grade six. Like when I was doing that, I didn't have kids and like kids ask questions that are just, they're so honest, right? (laughs) You know, but now I have a kid and I'm kind of like replaying a little bit of that going, I wonder what it would, what my kid would be like if someone came into his classroom and talked about bullying. Like, I wonder what he would say. I'm sure something comes to mind. (laughs) Anyway, so that, I mean, that's the the first role that I had, but then I did, um, I did work in some anger management courses like um, when kids were charged with a violent offense, 
and they were given anger management as part of their disposition. So I would, I didn't run those groups, but I was a co-facilitator. That was kind of the other end of things. Those were kids who were already in conflict with the law. So you would counsel them one-on-one? No, no, no. Okay. We would do groups. So we would have groups that would talk about um, emotions and handling anger. And it was, it was kind of group therapy, but it was not, I was not the therapist. I was the the spare, <laughs> the extra. <laughs> um, it was run by a, a marriage and family therapist, right? So she would do the groups and then I would work with her. Right. A word that, that I remember came up a lot at the time was recidivism, which I'd never heard. You, you kept coming back to that. Do you remember that? Just the, uh, the idea no. of young offenders reoffending because of the way the system is set up? I really do think that the system is set up to sort of pull them in. You know, a young person will get in trouble and it'll be like a fairly minor thing, right? And they'll get in trouble and then they'll have an encounter with a police officer. This is at a young age, I imagine. Yeah, at a young yeah. age. And then that doesn't go well. Either they get a charge or they get a warning or they think it was unfair. So now they have a bit of a, you know, the police are out to get us kind of mentality. And then maybe the next encounter, they're a little bit louder, a little bit mouthier, a little bit more brazen in that interaction, right? And then they get a charge that time. And then they get, you know, a, a conviction, and then they get probation, and then they have a probation order that they can't fulfill. So then like, so then they get a, a what's called an administrative offense, right? Because they breached probation. So now they have two or three things on their record. And they just, they just slowly get pulled into it, like quicksand kind of. If you can avoid that first encounter, or if you can make that first encounter, you know, relatively positive and hu- human, like humane, where the police officer is just trying to solve the the problem at hand, as opposed to the person as the problem, there's, you know, just trying to rectify the situation, you know, and it kind of, it ends peacefully and amicably, you know, then that person kind of leaves and they, they, they're not kind of sucked in in the same right. way. So I feel like the earlier, I mean, when you're asking me about systems, I think the earlier that we can intervene and kind of redirect and give uh, young people, but it's not always young people, right? You've got adults that are in trouble for the first time and they're, they kind of go through the same process of being drawn into a system. But I think the more we can keep people from having those conflicts with the law, it just sort of sets them on a different trajectory. And the way you can do that is, is by uh, what you said earlier, setting cities up differently, more walkable spaces, the kinds of people you hire as police officers, kind of training that you give police officers. Have recreation programs. I mean, a lot of that has come up over the pandemic in terms of are police officers fit to have certain kinds of interactions around people with mental health issues? And and you're dealing with that kind of stuff two decades ago. Yeah. As a young a young person, right, trying to kind of say, hey, wait a second, this this thing that we do all the time isn't working. That's so important. So that's one of the things where I learned so much from you. But the other is, people might laugh at this, people who are listening, but you work with people who had been charged with DUI. And what they'll laugh at is not that, but the, the fact that it was so instructive <laughs> for me, because at the time I was playing four or five nights a week in bars as a musician, right? In so bars. you give me all this right. practical info about how alcohol affects the human body. And a lot of stories about people who'd been charged with DUI in scenarios that you would never imagine. I I learned like, oh shit, don't do that. Like, I remember you telling me some stories of guys who tried to do the right thing, who'd go out on a bender and then say, I'm not driving, I'm going to sleep in the back of my car. And then they'd get up the next morning after having slept eight, 10 hours or whatever, and drive to work and get busted for DUI on the way into work. And they'd been sleeping already for 10 hours and they're still blowing over. Right. I didn't, it never occurred to me that that was possible. Yeah, it was. I mean, your whole livelihood was dependent on you being able to drive. Absolutely. And not only that, my whole livelihood was dependent on me being able to drink with people while I was playing music for them and then for drive sure. home somehow. It was yeah. a fine balance, right? Yeah, because you can't take the bus. Yeah, you've got all this gear. You've got all this and, gear, and, like... Yeah. Anyway, so uh, what was your role exactly there? Yeah, so I was facilitating the um, education program. So when people got charged with impaired or convicted of impaired driving, um, they lost their license and they had to do this course as a process, as a step to getting their license back. So they were, you know, fairly well along in the process and they just needed this eight hour intervention, I guess, with some information. So at that point, generally people were, you know, a little more open to open to change, right? Or we're able to sort of, I don't know, take their scenario 
what got them in trouble with the law and kind of replay it and think of different ways they could have managed that situation. They were open to it. Yeah, they were open to it. Oh, that's yeah. good. Because they've been so inconvenienced, right? Of <laughs> Not having a license right. for a yeah, year. Yeah, they're like, okay, we got to just tell me what I got to do. But I was, um, you know, I was doing that on Saturdays uh-huh. and then I would go home and I would power nap and then I would drive back to Guelph and play a show. Right. So it's like all day long, I'm talking to people about not drinking and driving. And then in the evening, my job as a musician is to keep them drinking. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah. I'd love to dig more into your work as a musician, but can we stick on this, this job for, for a few minutes that, cause I think every kid should hear this. Every person who, who drinks alcohol and drives a vehicle should hear this from you. Do you know what I'm leading to? It's it's the graph, the no, graph that wait. you explained to me, where if you talk about where you show a graph of a person's intoxication level as they begin drinking up to the point where they reach the peak and then stop drinking and begin to feel less intoxicated. And then you watch the graph and then you interview them about how they feel at different points on the graph. You feel more, generally, you feel more intoxicated as you're getting intoxicated than you do when you're with coming the, down. With the it. same so blood if alcohol you are level. With the same blood alcohol. So if, yeah, if you're going up and you get to, you know, the legal level being yeah. 0.08, right? So if you sort of cross that threshold, not that there's anything magical about that threshold, but let's just say that's the point on the graph, right? So you're you're drinking and your blood alcohol concentration is increasing. You pass 0.08. So now you get to that 0.08. And you're 0.15, and, you're yeah, going and up. you're going up, right? So if you ask somebody how impaired they feel at that point, you know, they'll give you kind of a descriptor, right? And then they get more impaired and then they stop drinking. So now their liver is doing its job processing the alcohol and they're not taking in anymore. So now their blood alcohol level is going down and it's coming down to the point of that same point on the graph, 0.08. They have a very different description of how impaired they feel. Because they feel less impaired than they did an hour ago. And that's the reason why everyone, the whole fight about the keys when you're like, no, I'm fine to drive. And then the, the guy goes out and drives and hits a tree or, or whatever. Because ultimately, the, the mechanism, the thing that decides how impaired you are, your brain, is impaired. Yeah, exactly. Right? The, the tool is broken. And, and not only that, what you explained to me earlier was because it's all comparative. On your way up, you've got nothing to compare it to. On your way down, your brain is comparing it to how wasted you were, you know, an hour ago. (laughs) And it's saying, no, I'm way better than that. Yeah, way better. Yeah. So it's all good, right? And people kind of have this idea that they're either, they're okay or they're not, right? It's not this like switch that you're like, oh, okay, I just crossed the 0.08. Like you have no idea, right? That was really helpful for me. I'm so glad that you did not get an impaired driving charge. Yeah. Like that would have been devastating. Yeah, exactly. And I was really careful and, and disciplined about it because, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, her killing someone or like that would be a nightmare. Yeah. So I always had that in the back of my mind. But at the same time, you know, you go out and part of your job is to drink with people, right? Uh, I'm, I'm more conservative than I was in my 20s. But uh, yeah, you, that really helped me. Well, plus, I mean, Rob, you don't have very much body fat on you. <laughs> You're kind of yeah, lean. But you told me a few stories that really, really freaked me out. I obviously don't expect you to share any, but did I make this up? There was one where someone, it was, a, it's almost all men, I imagine, in this program. Um, no, there, well, more men, more men than women. Did I make this story up? You told me there was a guy who'd been out drinking on New Year's Eve and he stayed up all night. So let's say he stays up until the morning of New Year's Day. He's drinking until six, seven, eight in the morning completely blind drunk, whatever, like many people get, right? He sleeps it off. He sleeps all day. And then the morning of January 2nd, he drives into work and blows over. Is that a real, did you, that's a story I remember you telling me. I don't, I don't remember, but that if I told you, then yeah, it happened because. Can you imagine? I mean, that would have been a story that I got from the group. Oh my God. You can't, you almost can't fault that person at that point. You know, it's a following day. Yeah. That's a <laughs> lot that, of alcohol. That was helpful to me. <laughs> Just knowing that, oh shit, this is possible. We don't really realize what our bodies are going through with, with alcohol consumption. I do think that there's also like people who have liver damage, right? So their liver is just not processing it as quickly right. as it should be. So you can't speed that up, but you can slow it yeah. down, right? 
So maybe that guy, I'm sure that happened. I just don't remember that specific story, but yeah, he probably had some liver damage, right. I'm guessing. But So let's switch gears. Um, you're a prof at Conestoga College for a year. Yeah, I was. You taught crime prevention and community safety. How was that? Did you like teaching? I liked teaching. I loved my faculty team. I loved the students. These are students who are, they're in a BA program at a college. So they get a, a full bachelor's degree um, in this program. And I was a little bit, I don't know, thrown into it, I guess. You know, I was teaching stuff that was, you know, familiar to me, but I didn't have a lot of context of what the students had learned. You know, when in my first year, I'm teaching a fourth year course. <laughs> I'm teaching stuff. And they're like, yeah, we've learned this. And I'm like, oh, that would have been helpful to know. So I didn't have a lot of context on the program itself. But the team, the team of uh, other profs were amazing, Mm -hmm. loved them. They were such a a good group of people and really, you know, supported me and carried me through. And I really enjoyed the interactions with the students, like the conversations that we'd have in class. It was also like really tiring. Mm -hmm. I had a little one at the time. When you're barking at your two-year-old to go to bed because you got six more hours of work to do, like it was just a lifestyle that was not sustainable for me at the time. So I'm glad I did it. It was kind of on the heels of another job and I had I had a bit of a severance package, right? So I had a bit of time to play around with this and try this out. And so I'm glad I did it, but it's also, I'm glad that I got another opportunity shortly after that to come to the School of Pharmacy because it was just a better fit. And it came to you over coffee. Mm-hmm. Before that, you'd been executive director at the Alliance for Children and Youth for Waterloo Region. You were there for a while. You were there for like a decade, right? That was another job that I, I don't know, I've been really lucky to have jobs that kind of land in my lap almost. And then I'm given the freedom to, to make them my own. Like I'm given a lot of leash. So that was one of them where I, you know, they kind of, they were creating this community, a collaborative, this connecting point between services. They kind of let me get creative about how to do that. And, and they let me get creative because they really didn't know how to do it, right? There was no one doing this. And there was just this committee of volunteers, essentially, from different services who were like, we need to have a better mechanism for communicating between organizations. We need to have a better way of, you know, talking about how changes in legislation or changes in policy affect all of these different aspects of uh-huh. child wellness, Right. We need a better system uh, of talking about and working that out in a way that's not like forced. Right. Not like a, a ministry of, you know, the provincial government kind of says, here's money to do this. Right. That's not really the what they wanted. They wanted to self-create it and self-organize and create this mechanism for communication. So that was pretty innovative. And I didn't do any of that. Like I just came on the scene where we had all these community leaders who were already saying, let's figure this out. Let's make something of our own. So then they hired me to help make it, but I didn't start. It already had momentum. You know what I mean? It had momentum and the kernel of the idea was there. They just all were so busy and it's almost like the glue between, right? It's the mortar between the bricks. Like they couldn't have any one organization leading the way because that's not what a collaborative is, right? It had to be uh, coming together of equals. So they had to hire somebody. So how did that work? Well, it's messy. <laughs> like, what'd you come up with in terms of... Um, you, you have to count on people being authentic. You have to count on people coming to the table without like trying to you know, put themselves or their organization in the front. They have to be coming together and saying, this is what we can do. This is what we can offer. You know, what are you able to do? What are you able to offer? And then kind of almost pool the resources and then have a look at what, what is possible. And, you know, who's willing, I'm being very vague, but I, you know, it's a long time ago and it's kind of hard to think of a concrete example, but so there was a change in legislation that affected kids. Yeah. So then we had to kind of play that out, right? In our community. What does that mean? If somebody goes into, I don't know, I can't think of good examples here, but each step along the way of a kid getting in trouble with the law, for example, has impacts on different systems. So we, we wanted to talk about that as a community and how, you know, there's a there's a strong movement in our community about restorative justice, or there was. I don't know that it's still there, to be honest. I don't know what's meant by restorative justice. So where you're trying to f- repair the harm, essentially, is what that comes down to. Uh-huh. So rather than just punish someone for something that they've done, it's, it's the mom who takes their kid back to the shopkeeper and, and, you know, gives back the lollipop that they stole and apologizes, right? It's that trying to make amends 
but on a bigger level. On a more right? formal, uh, like that would be part of your sentence. Right. So it's, you know, when a, when a kid is in trouble with the law and they go and they, I don't know, are part of anger management counseling, for example, that's kind of a, an attempt to address the reason why. Totally. The root cause. Yeah. Uh, this is all such important work. I mean, all with children too, like with children and youth, this is really meaningful, like like really concrete ways to make the world a better place. I, I just admire you for that. I do want to talk about music though. You, you said you talked about uh, yeah, driving to Guelph to do your work as a bass player. Was that when you were playing with Matt Osborne? Is that, uh, or what was that gig? We played at the Woolwich, the Woolwich Arms, Woolly, more, more than most places, I think. So I'd love to dig into your time playing with Matt, but before we do that, can we talk a little bit about your evolution as a bass player? Like how you started and like, we first got to know each other in high school in the jazz band, the jazz band at Grand River High School in Kitchener. Yeah, absolutely. That's when I first learned that you were cool. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like already knew, been in I school for five years together. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, but you weren't cool until... <laughs> no, but you were kind of like, you were a metal guy, right? Is metal not cool? Long hair and... Wait a second. Back up. <laughs> yeah, I um, I played violin in the orchestra and I wanted to play something cooler. Because <laughs> the violin is a lot of things, but cool it is not. So Depends who you ask. But, so yeah, I borrowed a bass that summer and I went home and I learned uh, Sir Duke. Yes. <laughs> which I'm not even sure I could play now. I learned the riff in Sir Duke and uh, came back in grade 13 to play bass in the jazz band. In the jazz band. And then, you know, the other members of the rhythm section, you know, I was part of the rhythm section. I love the, I love the idea of a rhythm cool. section. I also love playing with horns. That was really formative. Now that I look back at it, a lot of what I learned in the, like, meaning someone who just played in rock bands would have missed a lot of what you learn in that scenario, you know, about playing with other people and having your yeah. role in a, a way larger whole. And it's really good for just, just musician skills, like sight reading and reading the kind of music that you might not otherwise. That was yeah. great. I, I, re I have really positive association with that. It was really Did positive. you do other bass playing? out and about in Kitchener-Waterloo other than playing with Matt Osborne? I'm trying to think of other stuff that you did. Oh, I played with some other bands. I played in a jazz trio in university. Uh-huh. I don't know if you remember the Holly Cole trio. Yeah. We were kind of a rip-off band of the Holly Cole trio. Oh, and then I played with my neighbor, Ned. Right. Um, that's how That's how I met Matt Osborne, actually. Now that I... There was a an ad up at the university for a bass player, so I kind of auditioned and got in that band. So that was, um, that was another trio. And then when we wanted to be a bigger band, we would invite Matt Osborne. So Matt, we kind of fill right. out the band. And that's how you guys, I mean, literally, <laughs> literally and metaphorically, right. cause he's a big guy. Right. Um, and that's how I met Matt. And then Matt and I started playing as the egotistically named Matt Osborne duo. I used to tease him about that. You know, which is Matt Osborne and somebody else. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so Matt and I, so Matt also was the Matt Osborne band, right? So he had sure. different configurations of people that he played with. But when it was just two people, it was he and I. Yeah, I remember going to see you guys at Free Times in Toronto, early 2000s. Oh, and nice. that was great. And when you and I lived together... I remember him coming around because he and I hadn't really crossed paths much, even though, you know, you play in the Kitchener-Waterloo music scene. It's, it, you know, it's it's quite incestuous. And so you you know who the other person is, but for whatever reason, you're always playing on opposite yeah. sides of the city at whatever time. So that was a really cool time when he would, you guys would rehearse and he'd come over and I remember hanging out. I have good memories of that. No, he's yeah. a good guy. I for him. those of people who don't know who are listening, he died um, in, what was it, 2013? around there? No, no, 2004. I was just yeah. looking at the the memorial, right? It was a memorial, that's why. Right. Yeah, it was the 10 year 2014, 10 year. Got confused. Yeah. The last show Matt and I played was a Valentine's Day show in Brantford. Um and it was one of our best. You know, some nights it it just yeah. fits. It just works. We had one of those nights where it was just like and we had like, I don't know, six people in the audience like we were playing to nobody but yeah for some reason it was just it was really working that night and i mean i, I miss i miss singing with them you know that's 
It's like I miss him as a person, but I miss singing with a man. <laughs> that sounds funny. What's it about a man? It's a funny way to frame it. I don't know. You're just talking about vocal ranges now, or you're talking about something else? No, not vocal. Like, there's a level of intimacy, I guess, when you sing with somebody, Absolutely. but it's not like Matt. Matt and I were not, you know, romantically involved, but but there is an intimacy to singing with somebody, and maybe more for me because I wasn't so, you know, focused on performing. Right? Like he, Matt was a performer, and this was his full time thing, and. You know, he was writing all the music, most of the music. So his lyrics were really personal. So, you know, you know, it was him sort of sharing himself with, with an audience. So, but he was used to that and he was signing on for that, I guess. And I was more of an, in, you know, the introverted musician who just, I, I wanted to play music, but I didn't necessarily yeah, want to perform The showbiz like, part wasn't really for you. Exactly. Yeah. So I like playing, but you have to perform in order to have a reason to play together right? Like you don't just... You're not just going to rehearse and carry your gear around. <laughs> for no reason, right? That was the part that I didn't do well was the performing part. Like the, um, But I really enjoyed singing with him. And I think there is something about singing with a man because it's not the same singing with a woman. He had such a big booming voice too. And my voice is not that. So it wasn't necessarily a good match, I think. But that's often what works the best when you do very different things and they just coalesce somehow. So, yeah. And I think, I mean, there was also like all the inside jokes you have, right? Where he'd give you a look and you'd know what that meant. And I don't know, there's just, you you get a shorthand, right? When you, when you sing with somebody, I mean, you have this with lots of people, I'm sure, where you, you're so used to the way they do things that you know what they're going to do and you, or they'll give you a look or, or a cue that is indecipherable oh, absolutely. for somebody watching. It's so subtle. And I, you know, I miss that having that shorthand and that those kind of moments with him. But I, I totally get what you mean. I had yeah, I uh, Steve Strongman and I, when we used to play the same circuit and we were playing four or five nights a week as an acoustic mm -hmm. duo, playing a lot of those same rooms that you're talking about. And you, you're doing that with Matt for years, right? So you do develop this intimacy is def that's the word I would use for sure. And not only on the shorthand yeah. stuff, but the, the singing together is really, you don't talk about it. It's not like you right. talk it through, you just do it. And then in doing it, you there's this thing that happens. I guess it either happens or it doesn't. That's it intense doesn't, yeah. for not to be able to do that again. Yeah, and I haven't found that with this sounds funny, but I'll, I'll say it to you. I might get you to cut it out later or whatever, but other forms of intimacy, let's just say, <laughs> you know, there's a kind of a, an established way of making that happen. Like you get a bottle of wine and you, you know, but I can't, it's not like I'm going to call up a guy and go, Hey, can we sing together? Like, <laughs> I, know, it I just think feels what you're saying is so, is so awkward. important. It's like, what, what's the icebreaker for that? Yeah. <laughs> like a dating site for singers like swipe right it's a business idea <laughs> but yeah so i mean i think i miss i also miss with matt him challenging me like if you want to grow as a musician you need to play with people who are better than you i think you know matt was better than me like and so it would it would push me to do to do things but he'd also like challenge me on stuff like, like meaning you guys have discussions and um, it like disagreements about how you should do things and then you'd kind of talk it through and yeah. that's that's really rewarding. Yeah, it was really rewarding. I would do like a harmony line mm -hmm. that he didn't yeah, like. Yeah. So he and sometimes he would tell me what to sing. And I'd be like, "Don't tell me what to sing." Like or he'd 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 tell me what to play. This is what the how the bass line goes and I'm like I'm the bass player. I know how the bass line goes. I it's what I play. That becomes the bass line, right? Like, and you know, and sometimes like Matt would he'd want another Matt, right? He'd want mm -hmm. someone else to play the bass line that he imagines in his head or sing the harmony line the way that he just wants another mm -hmm. hand. I've been right? I, can, <laughs> like, I can relate, right? And so sure. I would rebel against that because that's not what I want to I don't want to play that. Like that's not how I and then often, I mean Often he was right, right? Often he did have the better harmony line or what he imagined in his head was was better. It was just not a way that I would have ever played that. So and it, you'd come around me, to right? it? I would grow a little eventually, bit. Eventually or, or not. Yeah, often I would come around to it. And kind of, yeah, like I would, I can't really describe this in any detail, but you know, you have certain ways that you play, certain riffs that you play, certain turnarounds that you play, right? And they just become your comfort and you don't necessarily try to play it the way someone else would play it, right? 
by doing that, you're like, oh, I've got another tool in my toolbox now. I have another way to get, you know, to do that chord progression or to do that walk on the bass. So yeah, I would often come around and often, damn it, he'd be right. <laughs> and he'd have the better, he'd have the better line, but I didn't like being told what to do. I still don't like being told what to do in most settings. So, but yeah, I miss having, I mean, that's an intimacy too, right? Where somebody pushes you to be better. You know, of course, woven into all of your re- rehearsing are personal conversations, right? So they're, there he's pushing you a bit too and challenging you a bit. So I miss that kind of relationship that you develop, I think, quicker and deeper when you're musical friends, maybe more so than when you're interacting over different things. Yeah, right away, you're more vulnerable and exposed, like we were just talking about. So right, you can't help but being able to kind of segue into other things with that and carry that forward with you. Yeah, so losing Matt was kind of my first um, big grief experience, I think, getting around losing that, like... And he was what? I think he was 32. Maybe it was just before he was 32. It was sudden. He died in his sleep. No one expected it. Yeah, it was just like, so you kind of have this, like, I just talked to him, you know, a couple days ago kind of phenomenon. And that's pretty hard to get your mind around. Yeah, I don't think I had the language or, I don't know, the wherewithal at the time to, like, I don't know, be there for you in the way that it might have been better. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to picture myself in my Mm -hmm. late 20s and, like, this is a huge loss out of nowhere. It must have been such a shock. Yeah. It's also, um, you know, I wasn't his girlfriend, right? So it's not like, it's not like I was the widow in that case, right? It's like the focus has to be on the people who are closest to him. And you kind of make that decision based on, you know, his girlfriend at the time, Kimberly, and his his parents, you know, so nobody thinks about his musical partner, right? Because that doesn't seem like a close a close connection necessarily, but... Clearly it was. So you were, you were saying it wasn't the first. You did experience a terrible loss later. So I lost my husband five years ago. So that was a huge loss. And I mean, you and I both have lost our dads pretty recently too. So, you know, grief, man. It, grief has been a constant companion, I think. I think for me for the last, you know, too long. It's been hard. Being a widow in your forties is a pretty unusual thing, right? So I don't I don't know what I want to say about it, but realizing that really you don't really know what it's like until it happens to you. Like people think that they know. And I remember thinking, so I have a, a friend of mine who had lost his wife, what, two thousand and eight. And I remember sitting in a coffee shop with him and he was, you know, just barely, barely putting the words together. And, you know, and I remember thinking, I get this. Mm-hmm. I get what he's going through. You know, I felt sadness. I know. And this is just like lots of it, right? It's like really, really sad. So I, I think on that level, I thought I knew what it was like. And then when I was the widow, I did not know what it was like. Like, yeah, you can't really understand until you're there. And I mean, I don't wish that on anyone, right? I don't, you know, and having lost my dad and you've lost your dad and, you know, that's also a pretty significant uh grief experience but it is different it's yeah it's it's different because you kind of expect to outlive your parents yeah like you know that that's coming at some point i can really relate to what what you're saying in terms of not knowing what it's like until you go through it i definitely feel like i certainly think back to friends of mine close friends who lost their one or more of their parents earlier than i did before i'd gone through it and think oh shit, I was really not a good friend to them because I had no idea what it meant or what it felt like or anything. I was just insensitive by virtue of being ignorant, I guess. I mean, it sounds like an excuse, but I don't know what other way to to frame it. Yeah, but it's, I mean, when I, so then I became a widow and I'm looking around and I recognize that people don't know what to do. Uh Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not faulting any of my friends for, for their response or their lack of response. Cause I know they have no idea how to relate to it. Yeah. Right? That's why I brought it up as it relates to Matt too. I could think back to, you know, what I could have done as a friend for you at the time. And I'm thinking I probably didn't do a good job of it cause I'd never been through a significant loss in my life. Yeah. But I've been that person too, right? I've been that person kind of standing on the sidelines going, and even now, I mean, somebody will lose a spouse and you would think that I would know what to say. <laughs> and I still, I still stumble, you know, because everything feels a bit like a platitude 
cold comfort kind of let me know if there's anything I can do. Like, you know, everything happens for a reason or I don't know, people give these, they say these things and they're not, I'm certainly not offended by it. It's, they're doing their best, right? They're doing their best to, to show up for me, right? And absolutely. And they don't know what else to do. But I think the best that you can do is just keep talking to somebody, right? It's like not to stop interacting with them and, and I almost acknowledge it, right? Acknowledge, hey, this is really yeah. weird. <laughs> like, I don't know what to say to you. Like, I think your dad was of the same, the same mindset about a lot of the things being platitudes because I don't know if I told you this, what he said to me at your husband's funeral. <laughs> and I was trying to do exactly what you're saying, like to say something meaningful and to be like, this is a really big deal. And I forget exactly what I said to him, but I would have said, like, I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, I, I, you know, and, and tried to make it meaningful. And he just said, I don't know why you're saying that to me. It's, it's her husband. That's what he said to me. You know, in the in the you know wherever it was in the church or in the the line, you know, when everyone goes the receiving line. But it made me feel better that just because he was so real about yeah. it, right? Oh, well, I think even my dad didn't know what to say, right? You know, I'm his daughter, and he doesn't know how to comfort me. But it felt like what he was saying was authentic. Like he's just like it's not. It's not yeah. my loss, really. Like, obviously, he loved your husband, but it's he, he was trying to say, it's it, go talk to her. She's over there, you know? Yeah. Be sorry for her loss <laughs> in his way. As you were leading up to that, I was actually nervous. I'm like, what did my dad say to you? <laughs> but he kind of chuckled, right? Just because, uh, you know, that's what he's like, right? right? Now that you heard what he said, it's, it's not surprising. Um, it's not so bad, yeah. You're like, of course he said that. Yeah. Right. I do feel like I want to ask you, this is the sort of question that I ask almost everybody I have on this. Like, why do you do it? Why? It seems like most of the work you've done in your life has been around helping children, often disadvantaged young people in some way. I imagine it can be really difficult and challenging and there's often no clear roadmap, but you've been doing it for over 25 years. So why is it important to you to do this kind of work? Hmm. Like, it just feels like the place where I can make a contribution, I guess. I mean, in some ways, it happened by accident. You get a job because you need a job. And then you start to really enjoy that job. And you see how you can shape you can shape that role into something that's going to make a difference. And that's kind of, that's compelling, right? That's like, oh, if I can make a difference here, what if I scaled it up? Or what if I, what if I also worked in another area where I can address not just the preventative stuff, but maybe some, you know, some deeper stuff. So I think there's kind of, I, I think maybe a bit of a momentum to it that, you know, I set out to be a teacher, to be honest, that's where, that's where I was going with, with my career was pointed at. And that, you know, that door kind of closed um, at the time. 1995 was not a good time right. to be a brand new teacher. You know, so I went into something that, gave me an opportunity to to change things for kids a little bit in the schools, but kind of came at it from a different direction. And then I liked that. And then I saw more of an opportunity and more and more and more. So it just kind of, you know, the next, each step along the journey kind of leads you to new places that you can, um, you can contribute. So I guess there was a bit of an evolution to it in that, you know, I started sort of working with groups of kids, like small groups of kids. When I was able to move into the work at the Alliance, I was able to affect change on a more of a systems level, right? So the connecting point between services for kids. So I wasn't working with kids any longer. I was working with the mechanisms that mm. impact them. So I got to kind of scale it up from the individual level to the more systems level. Did you like making that jump? It occurs to me like in some ways it'd be gratifying because you're actually affecting greater change, but then you're not having the one-on-one -on -one or the actual connection that might have been the reason you started in the first place. Often that's the way it goes as we get older, right? I think that happens in a lot of scenarios, right? You've got the, the really good teachers who get promoted into administration, right? But then they lose mm -hmm. a really good teacher, right? They might have gained an administrator, but you're bang on in that. I enjoyed having a bigger effect, um, being able to to do something that had more of a change 
outcome. But then I would miss the, you know, the random questions from eight-year-olds. Being the bully lady. <laughs> Being the bully lady. Yeah. It's like, and the, the reason for it, right? It's like you get into work where you're working on policies and legislative changes and advocacy and, and making, I don't know, speeches and writing s- strategic plans about violence prevention. And, but then you for, you forget because you don't have that day-to-day connection with kids. You, you kind of lose touch, I think, with, mm-hmm. with why, why you're doing it. So ideally you get a little bit of both somehow. Well, you've got uh, a 10-year-old at home. He is my whole world now. He is the center of my universe. And, and he's such a, a, a joy and so excited about everything. <laughs> so there you go. That's your connection. You're not, not going to lose that. Yeah. But he was also, I mean, sort of stepping back a few minutes in terms of dealing with grief. Like he was, he's the answer. Mm-hmm. How do you get through losing your husband? You have a five-year-old who needs you to get out of bed like and make breakfast and do something with them. And like asks you questions and sort of keeps you going, right? It's like, I don't know how you do that when you don't have a little one kind of pulling you out of it. And almost, you know, we talked sort of earlier, I'm not sure if it'll be in the recording or not, but we talked earlier about, you know, me blowing out a tire just before this, just before this conversation. And it's like the kid does the same thing. He pulls you back into, he pulls you out of your head and back into the, stuff that has to get done right now, the here and the now, the the tangible, right? So kids are amazing that way. They bring you into the moment and, you know, you still got to make pancakes. <laughs> like, doesn't matter how upset or depressed or sad you are. Yeah. So I think it's kind of the fake it till you make it. It's like he makes you, pulls you out and makes you live your life and go through the motions of just the stuff you have to do to carry on. And that act alone helps you to carry on, I guess. Kids are good that way. <laughs> they yeah. are. They bring you into the moment whether you want to or not. That's beautiful. I, I think that's a good way to end. I yeah. uh, I really want to thank you for, for doing this in the first place, for agreeing to to do it and for sharing yourself the way you have. I'm, I'm really grateful for the work you do and uh, to have known you all these years. It's a good friendship we've got. Christine Bird. Christine Bird. That was a great conversation for me. I'm so glad we did that. It was fantastic reliving some of the time we spent together in our late 20s. It was great to hear about all of this stuff that she kind of introduced me to back then. This is her life's work, you know? It's interesting to revisit some of these ideas when you have a little more experience. So I'm really... I'm really grateful to be able to do that in a life and, you know, maintain connections. And it was just good for my soul to talk to her in this way. All right. So like I do at the end of all of these shows, thank you to you people who listen week after week. And big, special thank you to those of you who support the show through coffee. The link to support the show, if you're so inclined, is always the first link in the episode notes. You can scroll down to it from your phone or if you're on the website, on your desktop, it says, click here to support the show, support this podcast, click here, something like that. (laughs) I should know it off the top of my head, shouldn't I? Thank you. Thank you for listening. Shows go live the first and the third Wednesday of every month. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your ears. Thank you for giving a shit. Take care of yourselves out there. And Sometimes Why is brought to you by Rob Szabo. Conversations are edited by Todd Donald. 